It's the final episode of season four, and we're talking about crisis comms and cyber. Crisis comms isn't just for cyber, and cyber's a much bigger topic than comms. But in the Venn diagram of business continuity topics, there's a fair chunk of overlap with these two. To give this all some context, these interviews took place in early 2020, ahead of the COVID-19 lockdown. At the time, foreign exchange firm Travelex had just suffered a major cyber attack, taking its online services down for a month. Its early public announcements were mixed, claiming the cause was a software virus on social media, but its website had a planned maintenance notice up. Days later, attackers told the BBC that they had installed ransomware and were demanding $6 million. Travelex was forced to update its statement to confirm the report. Inevitably, we ended up discussing the case with all of our guests. As people who've lived through various cyber attacks, they were very sympathetic to Travelex. They knew how difficult these situations are. With that being said, there were several things Travelex didn't get right. Speed of response, holding statements, disclosure, and maintaining consistency of internal and external comms were all mentioned, as we'll hear. We're going to start with my conversations with Dean Beaumont from Experian. Experian is a very large, multinational business. It has the benefit of having specialists not just in BC, but in cyber, in PR and comms, in data protection and governance... I was interested to hear how he ties all of these departments together for a coordinated response. Yeah, okay, right. So it's interesting you should say that because um, my team, the BC team, don't do comms per se. I'm, I'm doing the little rabbit's fingers, rabbit's ears fingers there. They don't do comms. What, what, how we have it set up here um, is that we have the comms team who are an integral part of any response team and we've got um, some really good comms people here who who participate in all the training all the exercises all the responses so we, we've built up that you know, relationship and not only from a trust perspective but also from a competence perspective they know when we press the button then they will turn up and they will contribute and they will um, follow the protocols of the crisis management framework so as a result of that We've got a comms uh, group that are essentially very effective at internal comms, external comms, PR, client communication, and all of the different channels that all of that stuff goes out on as well, be that social media, be that direct client comms, be that through account managers, be that through our own internal website, be that through our messaging services and so on. So all of that's driven by that, that, that group of SMEs, but we've had to go through quite a lot of pain to get to that place because we've had it where you know different people or different aspects of that group you know haven't been available or the, where the time existed we didn't have that group as a group you know they were all individual functions and that's where we were getting the kind of misfires and things not 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 quite gelling or, or gearing meshing together properly so i feel that um we've got that to a much better place but there's always room for improvement you can never say, oh, it's great, it all works perfectly every time. Here's the thing. You're never going to get away from the fact that we live in such an interconnected world. It, you know, it, it's tiny. Um, and you are going to have stories that 
are taking place in you know one part of the world that are immediately available to people on the other part of the world there's no no such thing as the you know uh the delay that you maybe used to have pre the world wide web or pre social media where you know things would appear on front pages of newspapers days after they happened it's it's a completely different situation now um and of course we get a tension between what a local business wants to do, what a country wants to do, what a region wants to do, what globally you know, we want to do. So there always has to be that, that interconnectivity between those different layers as well. In our last episode, we extolled the virtues of exercising. James Crassie explains, crisis comms is no different. High profile companies will have more experience of dealing with media attention but not necessarily this kind of attention. So, um, again, it comes back to practice. Um, the exec who would typically, or even the, the board who would typically be in front of the camera when something big has gone wrong, um, would normally be doing that in situations that, that are quite low pressure. They might be announcing uh, some results or something. And the type of journalists that they're talking to at that point are not necessarily the, um, you know, the, the, the killer kind of um, uh, 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 people you might see on BBC News at 6pm. So the preparation you put in for that kind of response is going to be different to the preparation you need to put in to go on the Today programme when your company's just done something really bad. Um, or let down some customers. Um, so getting those individuals who are going to be the people in front of the camera used to that kind of pressure um, and help them to practice it in a safe environment is really important. So that's the first thing. The second thing is actually just, just basic planning around who's going who's gonna to talk, um, when might you communicate, who are you going to be communicating with, what channels are you going to use, and then some broad ideas of what the kind of messages you might need to, to provide under certain circumstances without going into too much detail. Because if you, in my experience, if you're too prescriptive on what those uh, those those um, messages need to be pre-crisis, it, it comes across as a little bit, a bit like an automaton rather than a human sort of communicating. Um, and then I guess the other things to, to think about are do you, you know, questions about whether you need a um, a retained crisis comms organisation to help you, who do do all this sort of stuff every day, who are used to it and know what to say and know what not to say, that can sit next to your CEO and, and offer them offer them advice. I think that's you know, often yeah you know, quite a com- you know, comfort comfort blanket for for individuals that aren't used to that kind of situation. Crisis communications isn't just about your external comms. Particularly in large organisations, it's vital that you're also communicating with your staff and critically, that the message is consistent. I mean, in my my view is, if to the outside world you appear to be out of control, then arguably you are. It doesn't matter how hard your incident team are working. They might, you know... It could be that, you know, they're, they're t- I'm sure they are working 24-7 to try and recover the situation. But the fact that they've got staff who are going out to the BBC giving them statements about how chaotic it is, that says it all. Um, you know, they, they've, yeah, 
it's, it's very frustrating to watch it. And you feel for them. I feel you feel for Travel X because they're having a ransomware attack. Yeah, and often that's that's the last thing people think about because they're thinking about what do we need to say outside? They're always thinking about the media. But your staff are also really important, probably more important, in fact, than, than that first communication. So being, again, the same principles, being clear on who's going to communicate to your staff and under what circumstances. And the channels become even more important at that point as well, i.e. The, 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 the routes through which you're going to reach your, your staff. Because imagine a situation where the IT is not working and uh, telephony is not working because it's all IP based. How do you reach your staff? You can't just fire an email to everybody and expect them to pick it up. What other mechanism have you got to, to get information? Um, the other thing I didn't say to the to the uh, to the external communication piece, and it applies equally to the internal communication piece as well, is having a very robust um, sign-off process in place, so you know um, that messages that are going to be sent externally or internally have got the approval of the right individuals at uh, the right level within within the business. That's really crucial. At larger organisations, you have the benefit of internal communications teams or retained public relations agencies. Eric McNulty talked about how much harder this is for small organisations and what he recommends. Uh, Yes, and and you're right. It is much more difficult when you don't have a mature communications function within the organisation because you don't have professionals who are ready to roll and who know how to do these things. And you have to rely on people who put them with a part-time job or suddenly it becomes their job. Um, I would say a couple of things to, to think about. One is that you now have to assume, and certainly in a small business, but I think in any business, that your incur- internal and external commu- communications have to be absolutely in sync. Because everything you say internally can go externally in a heartbeat. You know, we live in this world of, of always on media and everyone's got not just a Twitter or an Instagram account, but they've got a full video production studio in their pocket. And um, you may have employees who, who are trying to do the right thing. And again, not, you know, hey, we're we're safe. We're hiding in the the, the tool shed. Um, well, that tells the bad guys where you are if it's, if it's a terror incident, for example. Um, so realize you have to, the internal and external needs to be absolutely the same and, and assume that whatever you say internally is, is going to make its way out quickly. Social media puts the power in the hands of the masses. You can't hope to control it, but you can aim to shape and influence it. So be careful what you say. Never, don't lie. The, the, the truth always comes out, but you can time when you tell the truth. Uh, again, so with, to, you can maintain some, some sense of order. Uh, secondly, realize you cannot control the narrative. You can influence it, but you cannot control it. Again, there's just too much going on. It goes too fast. Um, so you want to be influencing it, you want to be credible, you want to be reliable, but you cannot control it. And often what I've seen business leaders do is try and sort of shut down communications because they want to control it. And then that sounds like you are covering things up or hiding or aren't prepared or whatever. Uh, you can't keep on top of it. There is no way you can actively re- respond to people in an emergency because you'll be generating if it's big enough an emergency, 10,000 tweets a minute coming into your organization. You have the biggest comms team in the world and you're not going to deal with that. So one of the important things which I kind of pushed in my previous role and um, I'll probably look at in this one is how do you take control of that message? So 
how are you going to, as an organization, make sure your message is heard over the white noise of social media? That's where standardized hashtags come in. So we looked at it um, in with the emergency services and did a bit of work with them around it. Um, just having everyone tweeting under the same hashtag and just keep tweeting that for, for more information, check this hashtag. If you can get that hashtag sorted and on get it being the main one everyone is talking under, you've kind of got control of the narrative a bit. You can make sure people are seeing what messages yourself, other organizations are putting up about it and stuff like that. If you've got multiple Twitter accounts putting all the messages out under that same hashtag, that's key because that directs everyone to there and they can then retweet your tweets and stuff like that. And then your one becomes the top one at the latest board. It takes seven minutes probably for social media to turn against you as an organization. You need to have that first message out because once you've lost it, you're not getting, you're not getting Twitter back. Now let's move on to cyber. We'll come back to Dean. I was keen to hear his view. Because a business like Experian is so data-led, I assumed that cyber would be his most significant cause of disruption. From my perspective, um, the perception of risks versus the reality of disruptions are two very different things. And there is a, you know, without doubt, um, the sexy stuff about terrorist attacks and cyber hacks and, and data theft is one side of it. And I think exec certainly get quite kind of drawn into worrying about a lot of that stuff. But actually, it's good old power failure, IT failure, bad, plain old bad, bad weather that actually causes 90% of your disruptions. So, you know, in, in my humble opinion. That said, when you do have one of those, those really bad things that are perhaps the more Hollywood-style kind of uh, outages or, or incidents, yeah, the impact can be much more massive. That's not to say he doesn't take the cyber threat seriously. So certainly at Experian, we've taken it very, very seriously. You know, data is our commodity. It's our crown jewels. We go to great lengths, not only to, to, to protect it from an information security perspective, but also to understand some of the what ifs, um, if should the worst ever, ever happen. How would we be able to respond to that, respond to it effectively, reassure clients, reassure consumers? Uh, and we've got extremely detailed and well-exercised plans that are there specifically to um, respond to those kinds of events. Um, and yes, we have not had to use them, but they are tested and exercised extremely regularly because you know, we understand that, as I said before, data is our commodity uh, and we are entrusted with it um, by you know, governments, by consumers, by clients, and, and we underpin the financial services industry globally. So, you know, we have that massive responsibility. A bit like the conversation I had with Dean about integrating BC and comms, I wanted to know how his team works with security and data protection. A cyber attack doesn't have to knock systems offline. A data breach can be even more serious. No, we have, a, we have actually got an inter, in our integrated data, um, data protection and data breach response plans are 
are exactly that. So every um, discipline that you would need to be able to protect and respond to a, to a data breach tile incident um, are included in that planning. So we've, we've got um, extremely detailed work streams that interlock um, where those different disciplines work together, where information comes in uh, and is shared and joint decisions are made. And there's a whole bunch of pre, pre, pre-thinking that's gone into that, as well as a whole bunch of, um, so say, reactive activity that those, those different teams and departments would, would do together uh, jointly as in, integrated, um, as integrated partners, if you like, it's part of the response. Another cyber challenge is fulfilling your responsibilities to regulators. This is particularly significant for Experian, working in financial services, working across multiple territories, and handling sensitive data. Under the GDPR, for instance, data breaches must be reported within 72 hours. That's not a long time to contain a threat and gather enough information to supply to regulators. Yeah, FCA, and obviously we're beholden to the ICO and the PRA. So we've got, that's just the UK regulators, and you think about all the other geographies we operate in. So like the data breach scenario we just ran as an exercise. It's one of our global exercises. It was a breach scenario where it actually impacted consumers from all these different okay, geographies. Yeah, yeah. So you were getting like 20 regulators, you know. And then, of course, you've got GDPR, which, uh, you know, is uh, very, very onerous in terms of the responsibilities and obligations that you have. So it's pretty, pretty tough from a crisis management standpoint. To be out of the blocks quick enough. Yeah, I mean, one thing we're pretty good at here is is the forensic side of it. You know, we've got a whole dedicated team that you know have that you know real special skills skill set. So, you know, it's a it's certainly a it's certainly something that you need to have in your capability so that you can analyze what's happened uh, as quickly as possible, so you can turn it around and then play that back to the regulator in a very transparent and open way. Because ultimately, if you're able to do that uh, and remediate it, then you're going to obviously uh, come, hopefully, uh, it's going to reflect better on you, you know, a little bit further down the line. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a problem. There's a lot of bad guys out there, right? Wanting to, you know, gone are the days they turn up with a, a gun and a note at, at, the, at the cash counter in the bank. It's the commodity now with data, right? Cyber is a difficult threat to quantify. As we've heard from Dean, there's a disconnect between what we see in the headlines and the more mundane causes of day-to-day disruptions. But a cyber outage can be far more difficult to recover from and comes with a multitude of additional problems. For James Krask, the answer is to be able to translate that threat into real numbers. Cyber is, yeah, a big one. Um, we, um, we get a lot of questions at exec level about um, what does this all mean? Um, how, what, how, how, how at risk are we? Um, you know, they get presented all sorts of um, maturity models from their IT teams linked to NIST frameworks and ISOs. What does it mean? You know, what does that red mean in the context of our risk exposure? So we do a lot of work on risk quantification, putting, putting um, numbers onto those risks to say, look, if that happened, it will cost you X. 
and therefore you need to take note of that or even yeah help you justify an investment that the IT manager's been asking for for years but you haven't been able to get across the line because you haven't been able to demonstrate there's a business case for it well now we can say x <laughs> is the number that you need to be uh, worried about yeah so in simple terms we um we identify a series of plausible cyber related scenarios and this goes for any disruption risk really we do it we do it across the piece and then we model the impacts of of those events on the organization's um, revenue balance sheet all sorts of other metrics um, and one of the benefits of working for a big insurance broker is we've got lots of data from the insurance markets on how impacts cause you know crises cause um, cost in a business so we use all of that data to, to help us understand the likely outcome of an event and then we come up with numbers associated with that so it's 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 a much more compelling way to have a conversation with execs and it gives much greater relevance to the business continuity resilience it dr or resilience or cyber person when they're having that conversation it's less about maturity models and frameworks and more about okay so mr c or mrs cfo here's the number that you need to worry about it's the reason why i came came here because one of the things we um one of the brick walls we ran up against at pwc was the lack of data so we had all these metrics around understanding where your resilience is as a business but we didn't have any of the data to actually measure it um we do here now we're on to our real life disaster story dean was managing business continuity for a high street bank that was thrust into the spotlight when an incident happened literally on its doorstep in 2014, a Glasgow bin lorry collided with pedestrians in the city centre. And the lorry actually hit, hit the building uh, and obviously as it, as it, as it couriered along and, and uh, it seriously injured and killed people. Um, and actually that one was, was also you know, very much about people. So our logo and our, and our name and everything were on all of the press fo photographs, although we weren't obviously directly implicated in any way. Our people who were in that in that branch came out to help all of the injured people and and, and try and support you know what was going on. So we had a lot, load of traumatised employees. So again, one of the things we think about is, oh, business continuity. It's about getting business back. Oh, business continuity. It's about keeping the lights on. Business continuity. It's about keeping business running. And actually, it's about your people because without those guys, you aren't going to get anything anything done. Our advice today comes from Julie Goddard. If you're working at a company that's never done business continuity before and has always managed to get by, they often won't give it much attention. It's hard for some senior people to imagine a world where they're not around. And some people just want to be the hero that gets to save the world. Um, and, and, and that kind of industry in that particular company, it, it was probably different to today's day, today's world of work, where people did tend to join when they came straight from school and they were still there 30 or 40 years later. So they've got all of this information and knowledge and experience in their heads, which is great. But once they start um, leaving or moving on or they're not there, that's where it starts to fall apart. Um, the, other, the other thing was they... They loved, this is probably because it was a fast-moving environment, they loved saving the world, loved saving the world. Um, 
throw them a, throw them a situation, a problem, a challenge, and people would be, yeah, you know, we can do this. And it was great, great camaraderie. You know, the problem was what you had to drag them back to was actually, I know, I know you like saving the world, but actually, if you were to plan this ahead, you might not need to get into these situations in the first place because we might be able to put in place resilience measures, which means that that, that problem is minimized or doesn't happen at all. And they didn't think like that. They were very used to flying by the seat of the pants. And actually, which is great, as we say, if you've got the right people there that have got the knowledge and experience and the bloke who's worked on that production line for 40 years is there. But it doesn't work when you start taking out key people. And, it, and, and you also, as I say, you need to pull them back to the place that actually, if we did this in a different way or built in resilience, the problem might not happen in the first place. Um, which is, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, um, Odd because if people have worked really, if people have worked really well and got through a problem and survived, they they think great, you know. In in a way, it kind of made it harder to do my job. Because think, well, we've had all these problems and we've survived, and we actually did quite well at it. But I had to say, well, you did it, you did quite well because Fred and and Joe got you through it, and they have all that information and that knowledge and experience. When Fred and Joe retire, which they will do in five years' time, then what are you going to do? And that's a wrap for season four of the BCP cast. Thank you to our guests for sharing their time and their insights. Dean Beaumont, James Krask, Julie Goddard, Simon Freeston, Richard McGlave and Eric McNulty. And thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions about what you'd like to hear or recommendations for guests, get in touch through our website, thebcpcast.com. We'll see you soon.